estate agents specifically are walking into the ability to create their own business for a fraction of the infrastructure costs compared to 15 years ago. 15 years ago, Ben and Sharon were to start a team. We'd have to go pay $20,000 for someone to build a website. We'd have to have a designer. We'd have to have a receptionist. We'd have to have like four people that do paperwork. Today, you and I can go and spend two, $300 and get a CRM, a design company, and a TC on a monthly basis. Like, What business can you have that has unlimited potential that you can run for $400 a month? I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. Welcome to Rethink Real Estate. My name is Ben Brady, and this is a real estate podcast aimed to deliver sales strategies, marketing tips, and business insights from industry experts and myself to build a listing-focused business for the future. Let's get into it. Well, folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of Rethink Real Estate. Today, I'm out of my seat excited. Uh, I've got... uh, I'd say he's one of my US mentors, um, and I've got somebody that I respect an incredible amount, uh, not to mention as well, he's got a few cool Australian ties uh, that uh, that he loves, and he loves Australia, he loves my accent, he loves Tim Tams, he loves all of the above, okay? I'm pretty confident that he likes Vegemite as well, maybe partial to it, but Sharan Shivatsa, ladies and gentlemen, no introduction needed for this gentleman. He is uh, He's an icon in the real estate industry, and we're just thrilled to have you on the podcast, mate. Thanks for joining me. Awesome, Ben. Thank you for having me. And I, I think people don't realize how long uh, and how much effort it takes to produce a show. And uh, what most people connect with when they hear a podcast or a show is, oh, I'm driving to the gym and I hit play and I just listen to this podcast. But there's so much that happens behind the scenes to get there. Even you and I getting this together has been several months of getting here. And there's a show, there's our time together, there's post-production. So I just want to, one, thank you for creating the time and space to to build this content and this platform out because I hope it I know it, it helps so many people so thank you for doing it oh thank you mate well appreciate you uh, you joining me today because like you said it's been a couple of months in the making but uh, but certainly I just understand the value that you can bring from not only a conceptual perspective of real estate and the skill set persona of it. I think that there's very few people that can give skill set like you can, but also then have an overall picture of the industry as well that can give some philosophy on maybe where we're going and, and some of the things that might we may be missing at the moment. And that's really um, what I want to talk about with you today. But I want to start at the very beginning because I don't really even know this. I've got pieces of it. I, I, I understand things from what I've read, but I've really not heard a great deal of it from your mouth yourself. But how did you get into real estate? Oh my goodness. I um, It was a as as you may imagine, the stories go. It was completely by accident. Uh, my my business partner and I. I was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. My business partner and I were investing in several companies, and we had chosen to invest in a small company just because of our personal relationship in Beverly Hills, California. It had one office in the luxury market, maybe 20 agents at that time. And I was like, I don't know anything about the real estate industry. I bought a couple of homes myself, an investment property, but. To me, it was, uh, it was just, it is what it is, and that's how it worked. Well, as we had were investors in this, it just so happened that the then founder of the company was embezzling. Because when oh. I saw, when I actually saw a financial statement, it didn't look right. So I was like, man, this doesn't look right. So my partner, who was an attorney, I told him, I was like, hey, I don't think these numbers look right. We should probably dig into this. We found that he was embezzling. And so me and my partner at that time had to buy him out because otherwise – this would continue to go on. And so I took a leave of absence from being a banker, uh, moved to California and figured out how to buy this person out and find a CEO for the business. So at that time, we were one office. 
uh, 30-ish agents in Beverly Hills. And I, I was thinking, how am I going to find a CEO for this business? I don't know anybody. Let me just learn to operate this business for a couple of weeks. So at least I'll know what skill sets I'm looking for in in, in this operator. And I, I am so embarrassed to admit that I was running some models. And the model that I ran by mistake, I added an extra zero. So we were doing roughly $300 million in gross sales volume with 30 agents in Beverly Hills. And I, so I, I by mistake, hit made it $3 billion. And all the spreadsheet numbers just changed. And it it put a lot of money to the bottom line. It it showed a completely much healthier PL. And I was like, wait a minute, how is this even possible? Then I looked and I saw that the number had changed. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. I said, okay, if this is really true and these assumptions hold, then maybe, just maybe, I can do this. So I actually built a board and pitched the board that if we can grow 10x in three to five years, go hard, we'd be able to build a really powerful business. And uh, so I I didn't have a lot of money at that time. I reverse mortgaged my house to buy out this, this partner and took over to run this business. And we grew from one office, 33 agents to 22 offices, 700 agents and sold the business to Douglas Elliman all in under, in under five years. So we got, we definitely got lucky, but it was all because of an embarrassing extra zero in a spreadsheet that made my made my eyes light up. So you say luck in that situation, but ultimately there was skill set. Do you think that there's there was an element also of naivety of about the real estate industry that certainly, you know, you've probably seen this before, somebody in their first year just does exactly what someone tells them to do and they make more money than they do in their second year when they become entitled and believe that they've got an opinion on real estate. Was there a level of naivety that helped or or because uh, I just don't believe it was sheer luck. Well, it was interesting. I, I got a lot of um, I got a lot of pushback because I ran the first year in the business based on the PL. I was like, we don't have money to do this, therefore we're not gonna do it. And so the broker would tell me, well, that's how we always do it. And that's how we always do it is the first sign that something needs to be changed, right? <laughs> like if anyone says that's how we need how we always do it. And I'll give you an example. We were as a real estate business, as a traditional real estate business, we were spending an inordinate amount of money on traditional marketing, print, newspaper, et cetera, in the marketplace. And it being in Los Angeles was very expensive. And we were doing it regardless of what our P&Ls looked like. And so all I said was, okay, well, we don't have the ability to do this from a cash flow perspective because I'm funding it. Um, if we pulled back on all the marketing, my naivety, like I had no idea, if we pull back on all the marketing, I know we can't just pull back on the marketing and just sit. If we pull back on all the marketing, what else do we need to do to shore up that gap? And so I was thinking, all right, well, if we pull back on all the marketing, what do we need to supplement this with? And I just, I had a different idea. I said, well, why don't we just pull back on all the marketing and just hire really productive agents? Because really productive agents do their own marketing, have their own networks, and they sell real estate regardless of us. So we should just hire really productive agents. So Ben, all we did was pull back on marketing and went and hired really productive agents. And I was very, that was... That was my that was my so, business strategy for the first six months. So so business owners that are currently in the marketplace at the moment with their own business that are listening to this podcast are probably saying, well, that's way easier said than done, but you didn't know how difficult it was at the time, correct? Oh no, I had I had no idea whatsoever. And in fact, I didn't I had not actually sold a piece of real estate. So I was seen as an outsider in this world, and you know how that is. It's it's like when someone is trying to do auction and trying to do have the reps that you have. I mean, even I can't do that. It's impossible, right? And so I'll give you an interesting story of what I did. I hired a coach and he told me, 
you have to show your top agents that you have better skill and capability than they do. And I said, well, how in the world do I do that with a short amount of time? And he says, well, if I were you, I would memorize the contract. I said, what do you mean? He just, you have a listing agreement and a purchase agreement, just memorize them. I said, okay, well, how does that work? So I, then I read the, I, I, I read the listing agreement into an audio format. It was like MP3 players. I converted that to a CD and I put it in my car. And as I was driving around, I would just listen to the California purchase agreement. And, <laughs> and so when we were in like an office meeting, someone would say, well, what about this? And I'd say, well, no, section 9B on liquidated damages actually says, <laughs> and I would just recite the listing agreement. And all That's these top cool. agents would look at me like, how do you know that? I go, well, how do you not know that? <laughs> right. And so, so my way of, of, of breaking into the, the, the upper class was just saying, I'm going to know everything that is available and I'm just going to have it. And I know it and memorize it in every, every possible way. So it allowed me to learn. That was my first way. And as I read that, it also made me understand the business really well because the business is the contract in, yeah. in so many ways. So I was able to be a much better advisor to our agents because I read the contract and I memorized the contract. That was the beginning of all of it. And me being naive, if, if I didn't know any different, I would have maybe uh, tried to watch videos, get licensed, find a course, et cetera. Instead of that, I just jumped right in and took the advice of my coach and said, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna memorize these contracts. And that's what kind of cracked me into the big leagues. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I wanted to make sure that you're aware of the Harcourt's Auction business plan that is available to you as a free value add to your business. We released it earlier this year and have had an overwhelming number of people download it, but also an overwhelming amount of feedback that when they put it into action, it's changed the way that they've thought about their business, not only from a numbers perspective, but also as a inward lead flow to make sure that they're building a repeat and referral business for the future. The main goal of what we're trying to plan for is to remove you from cold prospecting into that repeat and referral natured business that everybody wants. Again, it is available to you on the 16th of January was the episode that you can go back and listen to on podcast or go back and watch through YouTube. But also if you need to go to harcourtsauctions.com click the menu tab, go into the blogs and resources section, and you'll be able to find it under the Harcourt's Auctions business plan. Also, you can send me an email, ben.brady at harcourtsauctions.com, and I'd be happy to send it through to you. So this is probably a little bit more backwards than that, is that obviously you've got an incredible volume of charisma and your ability to to frame different situations and, and your your concepts that you put from a script and dialogue perspective all the way down to the way that a business functions and your vast experience in the business world. I guess that where did it all start from you? Like like everybody, like I attribute my learning to being able to be, you know, somewhat articulate in sales is the fact that, you know, I did it from a very, very young age and and it's not that I saw the best do it. I saw what they didn't do. So therefore I didn't want to be them. So therefore I learned from, you know, CDs and things along those lines in the real estate industry though, where did yours come from? Where did that sales mentality come from? Um, it came quite later in life. So after I, um, I finished my MBA and then I went to work at merchant banking, investment banking in, on wall street at Goldman Sachs. And it was only 31 MBA graduates in my, in my class company wide. And we, it is alleged that Goldman actually spent a million dollars a person in training. So I was in training for six months before I was allowed to talk to a client. Wow. And Ben, I will never forget this. It was probably like week two where they'd given us how to talk to a client, scripting and things like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll figure it out. 
And the managing partner walks in one day and he says, today we're going to make some cold calls. And I said, all right. And I thought we would go into our own boots and make some cold calls. And he said, he called people's names. They would have to walk up to the front of the classroom. A name would pop up like the CEO of GE or like we're, we're calling CEOs of huge companies. And a name would pop up on the screen with the CRM. I would put my headset on and he's like, go call. And you're calling in front of all your peers and a managing partner at Goldman who's making $45 million a year evaluating you. And if he hates you, he could fire you on the spot at that time. And my first call was such a disaster. And then I saw all my peers go, their calls were a disaster. And I was like, all right, this can never happen again. So I locked myself in a room and memorized everything in that script book because I wanted to make sure that if I was given a, a, a question, I had the perfect answer for it. And even if I didn't have the charisma, at least I had the core knowledge around it. And Ben, the next time I had to make my call, I was it literally nothing mattered. The call would happen. They would say something. I had my perfect script. The call would happen. I would say something. I had my perfect script. And that gave me this insane confidence. And then afterwards, I would just put my headset on and have the conversation. But here's the crazy part. The crazy part is when I started at Goldman, they handed me a no limit Amex credit card, a BlackBerry at that time, and a headset. And I asked my managing partner, Dan, what's this headset for? Like I'm in training. He goes, put it on and don't plug it into anything. You got to get used to having it as a part of your body. And so it's so wild, Ben, that even today when I get into making calls, we don't, we do more video now, but I get into making calls, I put my headset on. Yeah. Because it's a, it, I know that that's what clicks me into this mode. And I'll give you a, a funny story. One Friday evening, I was taking a call at my house. Um, and so I, I got got into the guest room and you can hear me. I had my headset on and you can hear me. And I finished the call and I come out of the, uh, of the call and my wife says, hey, so where do you want to go to dinner? And I was like, well, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Thai. I, how about yeah, maybe Chinese? Like, I don't know. What, like, um, maybe like, what are you thinking? And my wife was like, you are terrible. You can't articulate a sentence about where you want to go to dinner. But as soon as you put your headset on, you are so perfectly articulate in every conversation. <laughs> and so it, th that's when it clicked for me that all that practice, you said, you, you, when you get practiced, you get polished. Mm. And that's really powerful because that practice gave me so much confidence. And now when I think through something very similar to you, I'm like, all right, what is What's the psychology here? What's the frame here? Let me write myself a script. And, and for, for, for the real estate professionals listening, Ben and I talk about this often, which is we think that scripting is for us. But we don't realize, most people don't realize, they're like, oh, I don't want to sound scripted. <laughs> what we don't realize is the script is for the client. It's not for us. It's to help the client have an organized understanding of what we're sharing. It helps the client guide them through the direction. It helps the client understand how we are approaching the situation. The scripting is not tacky. It's not manipulative. It is to allow the client to think through an organized way to make a decision with us. If we don't script, we don't care. Hmm. That's the point. And so when, when, when people realize that the scripting is not for us and it's for them and we're doing it in service of them, I think it opens up a lot of this inhibition to make us significantly more skilled than what we do.
isn't it amazing how scripts have really because I, I can still I feel this level of confidence now based off this early foundation of uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Lee Woodward out of, yeah, of uh, in in Australia um, real estate academy he used to put out this uh, it, it was like a podcast back in the day but it was in CDs it was um, uh, hot topics then I would put it in my car as a CD and listen to it over and over again so John McGrath Matt Steinway all of these different people and those early foundations you know even now you know you see yourself going back to the way that some of those the, those uh, conversations or frameworks are, are there in order to actually put a conversation, as you said, in perspective for someone. Because like you said as well, is that if you can't articulate a piece of information in a way that somebody can understand it, what's the point in trying to trying to have the conversation in the first place? Just to simply confuse them? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and, and I think about this often as a, uh, you know, the, the, the material is well organized in our mind. And the script is to take that well-organized material and make it, put it well-organized in their mind. Yeah. If we don't take the script, now we have well-organized in our mind and confusion in their mind, and we know that a confused mind stalls. So if we, the entire purpose of the script is to translate the well-organized ideas and give it to them in a well-organized way so that we are the perfect choice every single time. I actually believe, Ben, that the, the salesperson or the agent that, can communicate all the pieces of the puzzle in an organized way will win 10 to one than an unorganized agent. It's just organizing language so that they can make a better decision. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the one thing that is sort of stands out to me in this process is that obviously you sold your real estate company within five years. Um, what was that process like? What, like uh, the acquisition, how did that happen? How did the introduction happen to Douglas Elliman and, and along those lines? Yeah. So, um, this goes back to my, my me being naive about all of this. And so a year into the business, uh, I was struggling because I was weighing over my head and I didn't know how to run this business. I was trying to figure out how to make money and all of that. And so I, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, man, you know what, maybe someone will buy this business and I can be out. So I, as an investment banker, I was like, maybe I'll just go shop the business softly. So I picked three to five players. I cold called the big names in, in the industry and they took the call because they, they're curious. And I said, Hey, I have this business. Um, here's everything. Here are the financials. Here's all of it. What do you think? Uh, a few of them came back and said, Hey, we'd be interested in buying it. And this is what we would pay. So say they agreed to pay a million dollars. I'd say, well, all right, what would it take for me to get 2 million? And they said, well, Sharon, for it to, for it, for us to pay 2 million, we need to do a, B and C. You need to have A, B, and C in your business. I was like, great, thank you. And that A, B, and C became my business plan for the next year. Hmm. And then the next year, I went back to them and I said, hey, you told me it was a million and I needed to do A, B, C to get it to two. I did A, B, C and I did D. So it's probably worth more than two, right? So they looked at it and said, yeah, it's worth two, two. I'm like, well, what do I need to do to get it to five? And they said, well, to get it to five, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay. So that became my business plan for the next year. And, I, and Ben, I did that every year for five years. And the third year I brought a really great operator on a great COO. And so I would go to do these uh, discovery calls on, on valuation. And I would come back with a model and all these, uh, all the things that they needed to see a higher number. And that number kept creeping up and we started growing in valuation, which was really great. And I would just hand the COO what they had said. And that became the business plan for next year. And looking back, that sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. But during that process, I had no other idea. That's all I was doing. And, and, and I call, I, I, I share this and you talked about 
kind of outlook for the real estate industry. I share this only because there was deep accountability in in going through that process because I was not going through that. I could have literally sat back and said, hmm, I think our business is worth $200 million. If no one's willing to pay it, you know, I don't, I'm not going to sell right now. Instead, I was like, well, I have this view. Let me go validate it. And if it's not validated, someone will give me the delta and let, I'll make my business plan the delta in a lot of ways. And I think even a real estate agent should do that. If 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 I came, if I was doing, you know, if I was selling 100 homes a year and I came to you and we were having a conversation and you, you were selling 150, I'm overlaying my business onto yours and saying, what is the delta between what I'm doing and what Ben's doing? And that becomes my business plan for the next year. And I think a lot of people think that, oh, my business is different than Ben's. Well, mm, we're all yeah. very similar from a PL perspective. So if you boil it all down, we're all very similar. And uh, after the fifth year, one of the people that we talked to said, hey, I heard, I heard that uh, Douglas Elman wants to build a California presence. You may be a good fit for them. Can I make an introduction? And that us having built that over the last five years in an intentional way got us to the table on that. And it was a, it was a sweetheart Cinderella deal only because Elements thought process in this was they were either going to buy somebody or they were going to build. It was a buy build analysis and their build would have taken them 10 years or they could have bought us that day. And that I knew that right away. And that is what actually facilitated the transaction. What do you think were the key differences? Like, let's say that you had to do the same thing now, the key differences in that marketplace versus now, are, are there any? Um, yeah, I think there. I think you're spot on with that. There are certain markets that are very bio individual as to how the markets work. I think the realist. I think they're luxury real estate markets. Call it New York City, Los Angeles, Orange County, maybe Boston, Dallas, Chicago. Uh, you know, Aspen, etc. Uh, Hamptons. They're a little different. I, I've just noticed that because people are they like traditional brands for a little bit of time and they like. Proven, proven agents in that marketplace. But I think that's starting to break up a little bit. Yeah. Outside of those, Ben, I think that it's the entire country's, entire world is fair game. Yeah. But those markets, they're, not that they're stuck in their ways, but I think they change a little slower than most. So would the idea of, if I had to do that all over again, would I do the same business plan? Yes, but I would spread out to different markets very quickly to to shore up the revenues. Yeah, I understood. So so I guess that the the... The difference between, I guess, that Beverly was so. So you were predominantly Southern California, all yeah. all of your offices. Yes. So it, you know, Southern California with arguably could be one of the most tough, uh, toughly fought marketplaces. But it also, it's funny in the conversations that I've had in different areas versus you know the Southern California marketplace, Arizona, and different things along those lines. The other thing that we face as an issue is that the high volume of agents that an office or a business has to carry in order to do a high level of production, for example, is that the office that we have in Bend, which is our number one office for North America, you know, that office has 45 agents in it with an average production of $400,000 per agent, right? Versus, you know, the number one office that we have in California, where we have to carry, you know, 85 agents in order to do $10 million worth of production out of that individual location because of the part-time nature of people holding their licenses. So it's that flexibility of, of understanding which marketplace that you're ultimately in that's going to con- that's going to dictate the way that you run that business, correct? Yeah, 100%. And, and the interesting part is even the business that we run now, we are, we're in 45 states and multiple uh, Canadian territories. The, what's floating us is even is the fact that we have diversity in these marketplaces. So when uh, the luxury market in Los Angeles gets locked up, 
um, the suburbs of Chicago open up. And, and it, it, the diversity of marketplace is super helpful. I never saw that until now because now I'm like, whoa, we did, we did 37,000 transactions last year. And I'm starting to see, oh, these luxury markets got locked up, but we got some diversity around this. And that's a big lesson that I did not learn otherwise. But the concentration also helped us because if we didn't have the Southern California luxury market concentration, we would not have been an acquisition candidate for Douglas Element. Yeah, understood. So, so, that was a, that, so what was our perceived weakness from um and we you know we, we were we were fortunate from a from a boom time as far as market economy growth as well so the market tailwinds helped but having the focus i always i don't know if i shared this with you but i my strategy was i called it the pearl necklace i was like we're building a pearl necklace and we're starting in carmel in the north to san diego in the south and every single high-end market i want a pearl which yeah. is an office and i don't think in today's market i don't think you need an a brick and mortar office everywhere, but I think you probably need a hub that services it so agents can feel a sense of belonging to go somewhere. Yeah. So, well, that's, you know, that sort of segues me into a couple of other questions, but I want to stick to the story a little bit because you sold sold to Douglas Elliman. Um, and then how long was it until you got back into the the space that you're in now being brokerage model? Because you and I, you and I sort of forged a relationship but post Douglas Elliman and then in that between gap, how long was it? Was it, was it another five years? Yeah. So there was a five year non-compete. And so oh. I, I honored and served my five-year non-compete. And during that time, I spent most of my time just consulting and investing, which was, which was really, which was great. And then uh, the role that I'm in now, I was actually a consultant for. And, uh, and, I, and Ben, I'll tell you the truth. I thought I was semi-retired and I was done. And uh, the idea of having a chance to build and grow and run a publicly traded company was on the bucket list in a lot of ways. And, and I realized that in the last five years, having built a social media platform, a big media brand, et cetera, that fed really well into, into building and growing a North American presence and not just a California presence. So I wanted to find a way to kind of point this brand media bazooka in one direction yeah. and, and take advantage of it. And it was just, that's what, that's what lit me up to try to do that. But it was fi- a five-year non-compete uh, until, I, until I turned it all back on. So you've just led me straight into my next question because I'm just so curious is that a publicly traded company versus privately held, what's the differences? Give me the differences. I know that they're vast, but from your perspective, what's great, what's not? The, the tough part, uh, the, the negative of a publicly traded company is that we spend a lot of resources on governance because we are publicly traded. We have the public as shareholders. So which means that uh, the controls of checks and balances need to be very tight. Hey, who gets access to what system? How we report earnings? Uh, what can we share with people? What can't we share with people? Having books in order, making sure HR and policies and everything is done right. Not that you shouldn't do that in a private company, but there's no, there's not that much governance and oversight necessary overall. So we have to dot our I's and cross our T's significantly to make make that happen. And because of that, that increases the operating expense of running a business because you need people and systems to be in in line with governance overall. But the flexibility and freedom that it gives you is that now you have access to public markets to raise money, do deals and things like that. So if if we went through a tough quarter or a tough year or a tough four years, it would be significantly easier for us mm-hmm. as being publicly traded to you to tap public markets to raise monies or open up deals or do things like that than it would be if you're private. So it's a little bit of um, a, a give and take. The one thing that several of our agents have enjoyed it being publicly traded has been 
that we offer stock awards for performance and things like this. And that allows agents to feel connected to the company's growth because now they are part owner in the business. Yep. And it's not just they're a part owner uh, of an of a pi- private company. They're now a part owner of a public company. So they can actually, they have liquidity in their ownership, yeah. which has been good. But that liquidity comes at a cost, which is they can also sell their shares and leave. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but if I was a partner in your business right now and if it was private, I couldn't just take my shares and walk because yep. there's no public there's no market for that. So uh, the governance component is is high, but the access to capital component uh, balances it out. And the idea of just showing people uh, giving them liquidity of their ownership has been has been a win overall. So the liquidity side of it and the shareholding side of it has been something that obviously has come to you know the spotlight beyond since Compass. You know, with all due respect to Compass, has taken a complete tumble when it comes to what they have done in the real estate space. It's sort of soured the taste of a lot of agents for with stock options and all of that type of stuff. Because technically, a few of them at the moment, if they were to execute those options, they would be very much underwater. Yes. So, so I guess that how is how have you how have you seemed to sort of navigate those waters because you guys, whilst I think that you are far more innovative than what EXP is from a model, EXP were the first to kind of do that. What's the difference between that? Yeah. So uh, great question. So the we're very young, uh, having gone public very young. And the, the, the interesting part is how we went public. Compass did a, you know, they Cinderella story on how they, they built that business. But it was like, hey, raise a bunch of money to go build a business. And then once the business is at a point where you can't raise any more money in the mm-hmm. current status, we'll have, have, to, go, have to go public. And the, the valuation trends, as in now, now since there is public company transparency, if you can't hit the numbers right, it shows on valuation. We went public a little differently because we went public early on as the company started just to give agents liquidity. So it was not that much of a, oh, we're going public at this high evaluation. Right. It was, let's go public for liquidity purposes. And as the company grows, that valuation will grow. So what we are seeing is the original stepping stone was just to get the liquidity component. So it was never like the company was floated to provide an exit for anybody. It was yeah. floated to provide access for people. And so it was more an access vehicle as opposed to an exit vehicle. And yep. now as the company grows, uh, we're seeing the numbers grow, the stock price grow, et cetera, which is, which is starting to happen. That's why um, it's it was not an exit play. It was more an access play. That's a, it's a totally different strategy in that sense because I, I honestly think the comp- there, there won't be anyone for ever – or for at least a very, very, very long time to give somebody that level of money from a venture capital perspective to another real estate company, considering how much money everybody's lost in that Compass venture. You know, they were they were lucky enough to be first in that sense in order to buy market share and, you know, be able to do that. I'm pretty confident with 1.8 billion or however much it was, I could probably buy market share as well. But, you know, realistically, that's, you know, it's a whole nother category and a whole nother kettle of fish that we'll talk about one day. But um, I, I guess that the transition into that publicly traded company with the governance and everything like that for you, I know how quickly you move as a, as as an as a thought leader within the space. Is that does that stifle your ability to move quickly? Uh, sometimes, sometimes it does. Uh, but it's what it's what it's forced me to do is it's forced me to stop and collaborate more. So, for example, if we want to enter a new market, um, 
normally I'd be like, hey, let's get a broker. Let's go to a new market. And I'd be live tomorrow. So I probably have to have a couple of conversations and saying, hey, what's the right way to do this so that we can get all our ducks in a row? So I, what we have found is that when we can make a good business case, we can move pretty quickly on things. And the other thing that a, that, that what a public company um, kind of backbone has done, it's forced all of us to build operating playbooks. And what I mean by that is, hey, to open a new market, here's a playbook. Cool. Hey, Sharon has an idea to open a market. Let me look at the playbook. Awesome. If I get all of these, I can open the market and I'll have good support behind it. So it's made us, it made us a lot more uh, systematic in how we do it. I, internally, I say, you know, systems drive success. And um, so even if it's a, hey, I'm going to get on a podcast, like, let's get a playbook for it. Oh, we're, we're, the, the media is going to launch a new team. Hey, Sharon's going to get a call. A couple other people are going to get a call. What's the playbook for it? So it's forced us to be more organized on our playbooks. Mm -hmm. And that way, if we find a good idea, we just add it to our playbook. And because of that, the institutional knowledge of how you run a business is actually much better because if I'm not there, someone else can pick up the playbook and actually deliver on it. It's forced us to build better playbook because what that does is, in the eyes of the regulators from a governance perspective, that shows controls. Hey, mm. this is the playbook that they utilize. And so if something is doesn't go right, it's not the company's fault. It's that, hey, they ran this playbook. Let's just alter the playbook and every, everybody's good. So it's given us a chance to make it about the artifact and not just about making weird decisions. So that's forced us to make good good playbook decisions. Right. Okay. Well, that, again, it just has refined you even further, which I didn't think was possible. So, um, but I, I guess that the other thing that I've got, uh, you now having such a vast um, I guess data pool um, over, overview of the industry, considering the company that you're running now as big as what it is, and also your own individual ties into the into the real estate, you know, um, real estate industry. Is it what do you think that we have in store for as an industry? Because disruption is certainly the word that most people are afraid of when it comes to the real estate industry. Not to mention as well is that you know disruption typically is fueled by market trend at the same time. If you've got an outlook, outlook over the next five years for the real estate industry as a whole, what way do you think we're moving? Yeah, the um, I'll answer two ways. First way is the, a question that I ask myself all the time, the question I ask our team all the time is this one thing, which is if we were just starting this today with the naive background, how would we run this? Because a lot of times we are, even though, like, especially you and I, even though we know how the business works, we know the mechanics of the business, I actually think that affects our ability to quickly innovate. And 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 the way I try to force myself out of that is to ask the question, if I were to start over today building a brokerage, what would I do? If I were to start over today building an escort company, what would I do? If I were to start over today building a brand, what would I do? And what like if I if you and I were to start over today and build a cab company, we would it would look a lot more like an Uber than it would look like a yellow cab, and and people just so even if asking that question is a good one because it forces you not to fall into the trap of how it's always been done, hmm. and yet I think we're in that transition of there is this tension between how it's always been done and why can't we do it better? So like for example, in the United States, we have this MLS or this 2300 MLSs or whatever. If you and I were starting the, or the real estate business infrastructure today, there would be no MLS. There's zero, there's zero reason no for it. No way. Absolutely yeah. not. And, and, <laughs> if, and, and if an MLS executive is listening to this, I, I love you and I appreciate you because you've done for many years, serve the agent community. But my question is, there's not been any innovation in that space. So if we were to start all over, 
why has, is nobody thinking that there needs to be an MLS? Why does the entire country of Canada run on one central MLS? Why does all of Australia run with no MLS and just runs on, you know, uh, the, 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 the two Australian portals? Yep. There is a reason for that. And if you have a proxy for that, it makes it shows us to challenge kind of current assumptions. So a, a lot of my thinking is if I were to do this all over again, would I do it the same way? And that helps me kind of design some thoughts. But let's talk about the outlook. I have refrained from listening to folks, talking heads in the industry, et cetera, that who don't have to um, base their current decisions on the advice that they're giving. So a reporter can say, oh, Ben and Sharon think this, but I think that. And I'm like, I don't care that you think that because Tomorrow, with the new data changes, you can just change your story. But Ben and Sharon now have to say, hey, I think that rates are going to stay the same for the next 18 months. Therefore, our you know, our, our 100,000 square feet of lease payments have to be hedged in some way. So I have to make a decision on whether I'm going to open an office today or not open an office today. So our outlooks are actually based on deep accountability of how we get to run our business today. And so the only people that I listen to when it comes to market outlook is who are the folks that are utilizing their own outlook to run their own business today? Like at Goldman Sachs, for example. Yeah. yeah. They are like, here's Goldman Sachs research. We believe XYZ is going to happen. And based on this research, we're making bets today. And, and you and I have to make those same decisions right now. Like the reason if I don't have an answer to something, it doesn't mean that I don't have an answer to something today. It just means that I don't have clarity of the future. Therefore, I can't make uh, a, a distinction what's happening today. So, so the first, the, that's number one. This, the thing about the future is I believe that real estate agents specifically, and I'll talk about the housing market in a second, real estate agents specifically are walking into the ability to create their own business for a, a fraction of the infrastructure costs compared to 15 years ago, yep. 15 years ago, Ben and Sharon were to start a team. We'd have to go pay $20,000 for someone to build a website. We'd have to have a designer. We'd have to have a receptionist. We'd have to have like four people that do paperwork today. You and I can go and spend two, $300 and get a CRM, a design company and a TC on a monthly basis. Like what business can you have that has unlimited potential that you can run for $400 a month? I think that's pretty, pretty powerful, right? So I think as an agent, we should feel really empowered that, Let's you can create a 80% of your business infrastructure for $400 a month just on off the tool shelves. That makes it like, what is the, I'll talk about the value of brokerage and the kind of housing. That makes the value of the brokerage, what you and I do day to day, something that an agent can't get anywhere else. Mm. So, you know, I love the, the auction model. Like, I love the auction model. In fact, Every business in the world runs on an auction model. Like every market in the Airbnb runs on an auction model. eBay runs on an auction model. Everything, everything runs on an auction model. We're the only ones that actually have to do this real manual bid model, which is so strange. But, um, and Sharon, the agent in Laguna Beach, California, can't set up his own auction platform because that infrastructure is not available at scale to Sharon because I don't have all the components of it. But, that's a great value proposition for Harcourts. Like sure. there, it is institutionalized in the very DNA of the company. And that is a great value add because now the brokerage provides something that an agent can't build themselves. Yep. 
And so I think a brokerage's value has to be seen as, hey, not just the fact that you have a slick platform, but can the brokerage provide something that I don't, I can't build on my own? Sure. And I think that's super, super. And I think that's what people stay and associate and partner with brokerages. As far as housing goes, um, I believe that we're going to see commission compression because people are going to start to realize that, hey, this 6% or whatever the fee charged was, was arbitrary. And in fact, it is. There's no there's no rationale for why that was charged. And so clients going to push back on it and they're going to ask the question, like, why is it this way? Or can I get a flat fee? So you're going to see some commission compression. In the last 15 years, I, I looked at the chart. It went from 6-ish to like 5.3-ish. So it's, we're already seeing some commission compression. Um, so that's number one. The the other is, it, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that once we can get through uh, a little bit of this rate volatility, I really hope, and I, let me tell you what I'm betting on. I'm betting on the biggest bull market run that we have seen in our lifetimes. I believe that if we can just get past a little bit of this rate sensitivity, uh, we have built so much infrastructure, we have so much innovation, we have reorganized finances in so many ways that if we can just get past this kind of this rate sensitivity and understand how markets work, that we are primed for an insane bull market. And uh, I just want to get through this rate sensitivity as, as fast as possible in the next 12, 18 months yeah. and just turn on turn on the hose to for us to go and have this insane bull market coming up. So I'm, I'm betting on an insane bull market. Can I ask you your thoughts on institutional investors being, you know, uh, such a large portion of the US housing market now that, are, that one of the largest buyers out there, so to speak, um, are you, I, I don't know what to make of that. And let me say that is that people are saying, oh, it's really, really bad for homeowners. It's really bad for the supply and demand of things because now people are going to have to compete against institutional investors. Yes and no, I, I just, I just don't know what to make of it. Are you concerned about it? I'm not concerned at all. I actually like it uh, in a lot of ways because there are some markets that the, the reason the institutional buyers exist is because if they are picking up properties, they see a, they see asset values, they see bull market coming up, they see all of that. And them buying and holding stuff today actually benefits the it benefits valuations and, 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 and kind of like pricing of homes because you don't have pumping and dumping happening, which I think yeah. is, a, is a good thing. Institutional investors are, are very financially savvy. They buy portfolios at a time and they hold for a long periods of time. It also shows, it also gives a lot of people uh, synthetic access to home ownership, right? Because I think that um, over the last few years, affordability has been an issue. So if you can't, if you can't actually own a home, you have to drive far away from the city and live in an apartment. Now, if BlackRock owns my home, maybe I can get in to this home and still pay rent. Uh, we are, I'd, I'm going to wager that over the next 20, 40, 60 years, we're going to rent everything. Yeah. Uh, we've And Europe is a proxy for this. Yeah. There are parts of Australia that are proxies for this, but yeah. Europe is definitely a proxy where it's, all that you see are to let or rent signs everywhere um, in Europe. And they've shown that being a landlord is a good thing, but also it, it provides accessibility for folks to get in, live in cities and have, have better lives. So I'm not actually worried. I, I don't mind institutional buyers owning um, a lot of uh, U.S. real estate. What I am, I would get concerned if they start owning a majority because then they can move the market and that would be that would be hard. Yeah. But I actually think it brings if we're going to move to a renter nation, renting everything nation, I actually think it just provides accessibility for people to live closer, have better lives, 
and actually like live in a in an appreciating asset. So I'm I'm not worried about institutional investors. Yeah, and also better better access to capital then because then you know at the end of the day they're not capital poor, um, and it probably opens up a whole different a different section. You did say just before, and I think I'm really interested about this because we have um, we have some ties in Canada as well, and we've uh, we've done you know, a lot of auctions up in Vancouver. And, you know, that is closer to some of the other countries from a commission perspective, um, in the sense that, you know, they still have a buyer and a seller side or a buyer's agent and a, and a listing agent side. However, their average commission up there doesn't really exceed 3% in most regions. Um, if you were to look in Vancouver, you know, North America, or excuse me, I should say the US is the second most expensive model in the world outside of Germany to actually buy uh, buy and sell homes, considering the fact that, you know, it's more than double most of the other other parts of the world. So compression is definitely something that's going to be there. However, how have you seen the Canadian element of your company sort of adapt to that? Yeah, the um, our our velocity in our Canadian markets are actually doing significantly better uh, mm-hmm. than the US market. And I, I have a different view on this, which I did not know before uh, being a real. And the view is that I have noticed as an aggregate that the average Canadian real estate agent is, for lack of a better word, considers real estate a career in Canada as a significantly more professional. Uh, as it, like they take their they take their roles so much more seriously. There's very few part time agents in Canada, and the process is um, very is, is a pretty intense process because they use conveyors and attorneys and yeah. all of that. You have to know that process very well. And so I actually, the quality of the real estate agent in Canada, on average speaking, just because they're committed, they're a lot more career minded, seems to be significantly more than the, what you have in the U.S. And it's not good or bad. It's just, it's just a function of, of what happens. And, and because of that, I actually think you get a better representation. You get you know, a much more sophisticated deal. And all the agents are viewed as advisors, not just a, oh, uh, not just a required part of the process. Yeah. And so I'm actually a big fan of the Canadian market. I love how it, 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 even though it feels a little semi-archaic, but it's not, they have it dialed in where the conveyancer process and the attorney process works really well once the agent, you know, once the agent kind of lists a home. So I'm a big fan of the Canadian process. I actually am a big fan of the Australian process because yeah. I'm going to list a home. I'm going to run a pre-launch process. We're going to keep it on the market for X number of days. If it doesn't sell by X date and the, and the, and the sellers don't want the offer, we're going to go to auction. Like it's yeah. super simple. Yeah. Right. And it also allows for some finality in the process, Yeah, which in the U.S., sometimes you have no finality. Like you have you have a home that comes on the market that expires three, four, five, six times and nine months, nine years later, this home still not sold. And they've been completely disillusioned with every other agent. Well, I think that, you know, it's actually funny now that if you were to think about that in the, like, cause again, I've, 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 I've experienced this firsthand in the U S is that when I moved here is that I sat in front of an immigration attorney and I don't have a college degree. And I sat in front of the attorney and he's like, what do you do? I said, real estate. He's like, no, no, no what's your real job? <laughs> and I, and I, and I legitimately was like, like Callista's sitting beside me and she's like, he's a, he's in real estate. And they're like, well, there's zero category on anything to do with immigration in the U S that stipulates that real estate is a career. And and I and like we both looked at each other and we're like, oh, we're gonna have to get creative real quick, you know, because because but like then you look at this is that you know I, I for went college to go into real estate because real estate was just a much more career orientated pathway that I thought could result in some more instant gratification, but also more money. If you think about it, maybe the transition of commissions and being compressed 
if you look at the Canadian marketplace and the professionalism and the uh, that they take within their business because they've got to sell so many more homes to make more money, maybe that's the same in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, everywhere that that is. And then maybe that is the problem in the US marketplaces. I know it certainly is in the problem is the problem in the more high end areas where you know somebody can sell one home and legitimately make an incredible volume of money, which then causes all of this part-time perspective within the, within the industry. Well, you're, you're spot on. And I'll tell you a funny story that your listeners may love. So I spoke, um, I did a keynote for the NAR, the National Association of Realtors event, like maybe it's got to be eight, many years ago, when I, when I was very naive in this, in this business. And I finished my talk. There was several thousand people in the room and I was so grateful I was there. And the moderator said to me, oh, we got a couple of questions for Sharon. And this is maybe I was in the business 18 months running this company. And they're like, well, what would be one or two things you would change if you could wave a magic wand? What would be one or two things you would change? And I said, I was like, I really don't think you want my opinion on this one. And <laughs> I realized that you should not say things like that because when you say that, people want to hear it. Right. And they said, no, no, no. We, we love you for it. We love your we want your candor and your honesty. And I said, all right, well, with my limited experience, I would make two changes. Number one, um, I would increase licensing standards, professional licensing standards and continuing edge standards for real estate agents because you put a much better agent in, in the marketplace. And I got booed right when I said that, right? And the second thing I said was, I said, well, as a banker, I'm just going to tell you, I think buyers should play buyer commission. Why, why does a listing agent have to talk to a seller and convince them to pay a commission that they're going to give to somebody else and the listing agent has to do all the convincing? That makes no sense. Seller should hire a, a representative. Buyer should hire a representative. I'm sure, I'm sure mortgage products can involve, evolve where the buyer commission is rolled into, uh, into the more. In fact, it's rolled in right now in the purchase price anyway. Exactly. And, and so, so I said, I said that at, the moderator real re, leans over to me, Ben, and he said, "Sean, I appreciate your candor. You're never going to come back and speak at NAR ever again." <laughs> you know what? It's probably he's probably done you a favor there, though, Sean. Oh my goodness! So, so I, I you know, I, like take Australia, right? Like, yeah, there's a there's a reason why like buyers should pay buyer commission. There, why should they do? Yeah, they do every, that. Yeah, in every other industry, whoever is your representative, you pay them. Hmm. it's just so weird and, yeah. and maybe i'm wrong but I, we have class action lawsuits right now on cooperating co- cooperation compensation right they're like we we know agents and it's not good or bad we know agents that if co-op commission is shown less than a certain number or one co-op commission says two and a half percent the other says three and a half percent we know agents will show one over the other regardless of what it is i've actually seen agents have two piles one above two and a half, one below two and a half of, of, of flyers on who they actually, which homes they show their clients, yeah. which I think is extremely wild. Yeah. But yeah. if a buyer paid buyer commission, it would be so much easier because now, again, that's my thought process at least, but I'm definitely not speaking at NAR for any any number of years to come. Well, it's funny. It's actually, it's a really funny part. And I want to segue into this to get your thoughts on the auction process that, you know, we're running. You were you were very early on in the auction process when we first were doing it. And, you know, we've evolved it quite somewhat into different marketplaces now. But the interesting part, when we do go to a new marketplace, um, is that let's say like, for example, we use the Bay Area for an example, is that the early adopters of the auction process up there, and we offer auction as a white label service there because we don't have any of our own offices there. But 
realistically, it was funny, is that you go up there and a few of the early adopters, um, a couple of the agents from Side Real Estate, yeah. um, they adopted it early and uh, and it was funny. They were like, oh, this is amazing because they did like three or four of them each that and they double-ended every single one of them. Why? Because the agents revolted against the process and were like, no, 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 we're not coming to this auction thing, even though we pay full broker buyer side commission they were double ending everything because the buyer doesn't care like the buyer wants to go and actually see it anyway it's the same reason that uber succeeds in most of the other places because the consumer wants it they want to go see the opportunity they want to be like oh this could be a really good deal for me and it's a much better home than what i've been looking at and obviously then we know the process of them getting emotionally connected and away we go but you know it's funny those people that you know don't want to adapt to change are the ones that lose out and then they just get on board because they know that they're going to lose the deal anyway so it's it's amazing to see within that market but i guess that from your experience or when it comes to auction shrun where do you see it having the best place in the real estate industry leading forward because as you know there's a great deal of other countries that operate with auction as literally it's governed by the government you know you have to do it a particular way based on government standards now, we've created our own standard. We literally wrote the rule book for CAR in California, you know, and we're trying to help with that. But there is just this deep resistance based on the market that we've been in for so long is that people would rather take the instant gratification of selling a property than even when I can show them and they know that I can get more than 12% more than a multiple offer situation creates. What do you feel is the pushback from agents when it comes to something new like that. Yeah, totally. I actually think it's not even the new thing. I think it's, especially in the US, we're not battling new, we're battling um, baggage, <laughs> right? Because auction in the US has, has a has a general distressed connotation to it, which is why when you and I talk, we say non-distressed auction, yeah. which is crazy that we even have to say non-distressed auction because they have the baggage associated with that. that that's my, my first thing. And so as soon as they're like, whoa, 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 I'm not doing auction. It's the same thing as a, oh, he's a used car salesman. I'm like, I bought a used car before. It's not bad. It's fine. You know, <laughs> we've all bought used cars and now we think a used car salesman is easy, which I think is so sad. So I think there's baggage associated with it. But the second is there's a ton of ignorance because what people, what agents don't realize is a good real estate agent in a marketplace bringing a listing to the market in effect is is trying to run an inefficient auction process. Hmm. The entire process of bringing a home to market, showing it, getting a bunch of offers, having offer discussions, picking the high one and saying you win is, is literally, it is an inefficient auction process that we're running for our clients. And what what you're doing, especially what Hardcore Auction does, is awesome because you're just saying, you run this process anyway. Let me just make it more efficient and more transparent. Yeah. Because, and because of the efficiency and the transparency, you actually, the seller makes way more money and the buyer has a significantly better experience overall. And it creates finiteness in the timeline. Yep. Dragging on timeline is the worst thing. Like people, I love it when um, real estate agents will say, oh, you know, I'm a listing agent. And I'm like, just the, the crazy part about that is that nobody, neither you, nor I, nor Neeti, nor Callista wakes up in the morning and says, oh my gosh, Ben, I'm so excited to sell my house today. Nobody does that, right? Because buying is aspirational because I want to go and have a bigger, better future doing something. And selling is very operational. And, and every selling conversation in a lot of ways starts with a moving or a buying conversation. So if we can solve the moving or the buying conversation, the selling conversation becomes easier. And we think, and the average agent thinks that just because I got this listing, I'm, I'm, I'm all that in a bag of chips. What they don't realize is that 
our current process of listing and bringing homes to market is an inefficient auction process. <laughs> if they just understood that, they yeah. will realize the power of auction. I just the the other part of it that it also that like, and I sort of round out on this point is that, and again, I understand that people don't know what they don't know, but you know, we speak to people on a daily basis that won't even give us the time of day to talk to their sellers or anything along those lines. And they don't want to even hear it themselves, which is fine. You know, I get it. They don't know what they don't know, but, but realistically the part that really bothers me in this world is the fact that in this real estate world is the fact that agents that aren't going to, aren't prepared to write a check for the amount of money that comes out of their mouth think that their opinion matters when it comes to the value of a property. That's the thing that I love about auction is that you actually providing them a process, not the promise of a price, you know, a process for them to say yes or no, but there's still this, this unbelievable gate that they keep between an idea and their client. And I kind of get it. I kind of get it because you want to keep the client close to you. You want to keep them protected. You want to keep that level of control. Do you think that that will be a, a problem with innovation for the future of real estate? I think it will until uh, the agents switch their mindset and realize that it's about presenting options, not a solution. Mm. And so if I walk into a living room and say, hey, Ben and Calista, I think there's three ways that we can go about this. We can go completely off market and figure out if nobody wants to know that your home is listed, I can use our private database to do that. We can run an on-market process on how we actually bring a home to market, get it on the MLS, run open houses and do that. Or if you have a finite timeline in mind and you want to utilize our auction process, we can do this. Let me walk you through each one and let me see which one connects the most. Once we get into presenting options, we actually become the truest possible advisor for yeah. our clients. And so what does a financial advisor do? Or what does an attorney do? An attorney says, hey, Ben and Sharon, you're, you're going to launch this company. You have three options. You can do X or you can do Y or you can do Z. Let me tell you about X. Let me tell you about Y. And we and and Z, I don't do it for you, but I can facilitate it for you. And it doesn't change any economics. And I'm like, okay, he's still going to facilitate it for me. Yeah. And so as soon as an agent realizes that it is our job in today's market to explain options and not just shove a solution down people's throat, that's, I think, when the switch is going to happen. Yeah, understood. Well, mate, I think that you know, we've uh, we've sort of covered a whole bunch today and I could talk to you until I'm blue in the face and you're bleeding from the ears and the, the listener hopefully has gotten a little bit out of it. But, you know, I think that the first thing that I want to do is thank you for everything that you've done for the industry here in North America, not to mention as well as what you're doing external for a couple of other countries as well. I think that your foresight and and the out-of-box thinking that you bring is a refreshing take on on you know, that's one of the reasons that I had you so many times in front of our network, because of the fact is that, you know, with, with, without naming the traditional trainers, you know, realistically, it is the same stuff boxed up in different packages. And yours is just a refreshing and, and, a, and a different initiative in the, in the market. So again, I think that real is incredibly lucky to have you and mate, we wanted to thank you for joining us on Rethink Real Estate today. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks, buddy. So about 75% of our audience hasn't liked, followed, or subscribed to our podcast. It would mean the world to us, and it would help this podcast more than you know to expand our reach if you were to like, follow, or subscribe on any of the platforms that you're watching or listening on. Thanks again.